and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez. I'm Steve Edelman. And today we're going to talk about standards again. We have a new one that's come out. Is it a burning issue, Danielle? Is that fair to say? That's a terrible, terrible joke. It's Um, a terrible joke. I'm sorry. (laughs) But it is. It is because it's the fire safety standard. It's ANSI ES 1.4-2021 event safety, event fire safety requirements. And we are joined by a very special guest in, 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 in a number of ways. Um, we have not only the head of the test group that took on writing this standard, but the head of the entire event safety working group and the executive director of the event safety alliance himself. And our friend. And our friend. That's a very long introduction. It is. Dr. Don Cooper. Yay, Dr. Uh, Don Cooper. (laughs) Welcome to the pod, Don. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. So, so first of all, just let's remind remind our listeners um, about what a standard is and why the ESA is taking part in this one. Well, gosh, that's a that's a big question. I'll I'll try to be uh, somewhat brief in answering it. But a standard is something that um, it has a little more force than, say, a guideline or something that one should or could follow. Uh, A standard is just a higher level of um, uh, requirement, meaning that someone could, uh, it can actually be part of law or regulation as opposed to a guideline, which is just a good idea to follow. what happened here was, uh, well, you probably aware that um, ESTA started uh, standards, I think about 1994 or so, when some folks in the industry decided that wouldn't it be great if we had some kind of uh, standards to follow then it, rather than just trying to ad lib so much of what we do. Um, and that eventually uh, evolved into, for us uh, in the safety realm, I think it was about 2016 or so when we established the event safety working group. Now, what that means is a working group is essentially a a committee, a pretty good sized committee, actually, with maybe 30 or 40 people uh, total. Um, But what the working group does is part of a a process that ESTA Technical Standards uh, Program has put together that follows ANSI standards. Uh, ANSI used to stand for the American National Standards Institute, but now it just is kind of an acronym that's self-standing. So ANSI is an international approach. It's an organization that uh, uh, kind of monitors and coordinates and developed an international approach to consensus standards so that people can get together and by consensus develop the right way or a good way to do something. Uh, Steve would probably say a reasonable way to do something. Um, <laughs> yes, so I in, would, Don. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly, that is exactly what we've done here. Um, yeah, who so, hasn't, yeah, so I ahead. know when I got first got started in the industry a thousand years ago, um, everybody basically went to the hardware store and figured out how to do things. And there were some really creative napkin drawings and, and people being very innovative, but it was not consistent. There was no one or even six true good ways. Um, And that sort of style of thing is prone to accidents, especially because people are making it up as they go. 
And once uh, I learned about the standards, this is a fantastic resource. And guys, they're free. You just Google ESTA, E-S-T-A, technical standards, and uh, follow, click along till you get to the point where you can download the one that's talking about what you want to learn more about so that when you have this great idea about how you're going to hang something with wire rope, there's a whole thing about wire rope and, and how you can use it and what's the safe way and what's not. And I know with the ESA, we have this great resource called the Event Safety Guide. Y'all have heard of it, right? Um, and part of what our participation with ESTA is, is about turning the chapters of that very useful resource into actual consensus standards that have been approved by ANSI. Did I, did I miss anything, Don? Well, no. Uh, essentially, what we're trying to do is turn the event safety guide, which is uh, uh, hundreds of pages of useful guidelines, into standards that can be followed. We're kind of notching it up. And essentially, it's our second edition of the event safety guide. If we collect all the standards that have been generated from this process, hopefully we'll have what we'll call the second edition of the event safety guide. But you're dead on, uh, Danielle, with exactly uh, what we've done. So if I can put a legal gloss on this, just to, you know, this is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or the NIOSH standard for um, you know, risk control devices. Think of a triangle with you know, colored striations at the top, the pinnacle of, of authority is law. Law is you know, passed by legislative bodies and then signed by governors or the executive in whatever branch you're talking about, the president or you know, premier, whatever country you're in. Beneath law are regulations. So in the US, think of OSHA. OSHA writes regulations. And right now we're waiting for OSHA to write a regulation regarding um, you know, COVID compliance for companies that have 100 plus employees. So OSHA writes regulations that enforce, that fill in all the detailed gaps left by legislators and executive officers. So there's law, then there's regulations, then you get to things which could be required, but are not necessarily, now you're into the reasonable practices striation of this triangle, which creates a hierarchy of authority, now you're into standards, industry standards created by smart people within an industry to set forth best practices. No, there's no such thing as best practices. There are reasonable practices. That's actually what the law requires. And the reason that this is a soapbox issue of mine, and then I'll turn to fire safety at long last, is because the idea of a single best practice is antithetical to, well, at least the world of live events, if not the world itself. Rather, circumstances determine what is most reasonable under those particular circumstances. So, you know, the best fire safety practice for a brick and mortar building, which is quite old and not sprinklered, let's say, will be considerably different than the fire safety practices for a greenfield festival with no brick and mortar spaces at all. And so the, the process of writing a standard, whether it's within the event safety working group or any other type of ANSI standard, is more than just figuring out what is the one right way as distinguished from all of the other wrong ways, but rather teasing out the nuances that 
change depending on the circumstances. So that's why it's kind of cool and why we like talking about standards because it's actually, well, it's not nearly as easy as you would think as, you know, it's not like writing a recipe for some good food and then saying it's always got to be done just this way. Rather, there are details, there are circumstances that require different answers. And part of the drafting process is to anticipate what are the most reasonably foreseeable different circumstances and how do our, our authoritative guidelines change based on those reasonably foreseeable circumstances. So that's why it's cool that we have Don Cooper here as the head of the fire safety task group, because he's actually had to think through all of those nuances and circumstantial details. So with that, you know, it's, it's both explanation and praise for you and the fire safety working group, um, or task group rather. Don, here's my question. Um, I have used NFPA resources for many years, National Fire Protection Association, and their resources are numerous and voluminous, very small font sizes, lots of smart people involved in a very detailed technical drafting process. Why did there need to be a new fire safety standard? Well, that's a, a fair question uh, because there are, and I mean very literally, thousands and thousands of pages of fire protection, fire safety standards available today. Um, one of the initial challenges though was, so uh, somebody, could somebody please explain that to me? I'm running an event, um, you know, what do I have to do? How can I put it into practical language? How can I put it into real life use? Uh, can somebody please look through those thousands of pages and tell me exactly how far apart can these tables be? Uh, how wide does my aisle have to be? Um, and it, we found that it, it took such a high level of technical expertise to do this um, that it was virtually uh, inaccessible to those who really had to do this in real life, running an event. And it's important to, to know a couple things, um, if I may. The, the actual process that we go through, I think is kind of important. Oh, good. For people. I was hoping you were gonna talk about this. Yeah, um, <laughs> so a, a standard, somebody says, you know, we could really use a standard that's a lot simpler than these 10,000 pages of fire safety technical uh, legalese. And if you've ever read, read law uh, or regulations or code, um, yeah, it's it's uh, very technical. It, it often uh, one part connects to another, which connects to another, and you literally have to be, you know, an expert at reading things. Uh, uh, this kind of technical document to be good at it. Well, somebody comes up with an idea, as they did here, and says, uh, "Well, first, let's put together an event safety working group for the industry." So we did that first, and we chose to go with ESTA TSP. We have so much in common with that the wonderful organization that ESTA is. Uh, and then when somebody comes up with an idea for standard, could we make something a little simpler? Could we come up with a reasonable level of, of life safety um, uh, and property protection from, uh, so that we can protect people from the hazards of say fire and explosions and dangerous conditions in general? How, how do we do that? Well, so the idea comes up, we initiate it. The ESTA TSP, their technical standards uh, group says, yes, that's a good idea, let's do that. And let's assign it to this working group. 
And then uh, the working group's job is to, well, draft a um, uh, document. And they consult with outsiders. They consult with the technical experts within their working group. They put together uh, task groups, they're called. So they're subsets of the working group. And they uh, um, review things. They go through it, but they draft it. And then eventually, uh, it goes out to the public to review. The public gives comments back. And if those comments need addressed to change the document, they do so. And it can go out a second or even a third time out to the public. So then eventually, the whole working group approves the document. Then it goes to this technical standards committee for ESTA. Then it goes to the executive committee. Then it goes to an ANSI board of standards review before it's published. And then even then after it's published every, uh, well, periodically, generally about every five years, it gets reviewed and reaffirmed or modified. There is a, this is a well vetted, very detailed process to get everybody to buy in as many people as possible to buy in. And so, um, yeah, uh, go ahead, Danielle. You have a question. So- so, well, it's not exactly a question. I, I wanted to follow up on that. So, you know, when you're reading a standard and you're, you're even then there are a lot of words in a standard and they're broken up with a, a sort of complicated at first glance numbering system. Something to recognize is that every single word that made it into that standard was discussed and analyzed by a group of people in our industry and, um, but we didn't make it up. We got the, the core of that from things like NFPA and um, reasonable uh, working practices. So, so anytime you see a word in there, it was a very specific choice to say this far or this type of equipment or that. It's not just uh, a copy paste from something else. And right now I'm kind of talking about the fire one, but it's true of absolutely everyone of these standards is that they take years to develop because so many eyes get on them and people literally spend hours sitting on zoom calls or in rooms saying well in this situation what about this in this situation what about that so so that it is while it is not the only way that you could potentially um it is certainly a a well-vetted way um to help mitigate hazards and risks so that we can do the fun stuff of the shows without hurting people. And it literally proceeds until, well, just about everyone uh, has a consensus that this is the right way to say it. Yeah, I remember when we were drafting the original event safety guide, and Don, you will remember this as well, because it was also like giving blood over and over again. Um, the, The term that I ultimately landed on was, it was a compilation and a distillation of an enormous body of material that was out there, but was not specifically applicable to live event production. And so what we tried to do was gather as much smart material as we could that in some respect or another touched on the stuff that we were doing in the event industry So compile it, gather it all together, and then distill it down so that the parts that didn't relate to our people, we kind of, you know, put to one side. And the parts that did relate to our people, we tried to amplify upon them so that, you know, the nuances would be clearer for our folk who are, well, busy. And, 
you know, don't have the time or inclination to plow through a lot of stuff that doesn't really relate to them. Which is that, one of the things I love about the event safety guide is that you can find what you need. And something that's true of both the standards and the event safety guide is that it references where we got the stuff from. So if you need to dig in further or you, you're working with a, an AHJ, an authority having jurisdiction for your particular thing, you can say, hey, I'm working with this and I think it has to do with this. Can you help me out there? And we always encourage you to work with and not in spite of your AHJs. <laughs> um, so, so, can so I, that's can a I, lot of background. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot of background, but there's it took us a long time and a lot of thinking and a lot of work to get here. But all we're really trying to do is kind of upgrade or take it to the next level, the event safety guide. And a, and a big part of that is, well, fire safety. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I think we can all agree that fire should probably always be considered one of the most significant threats to any event. Mm -hmm. And therefore, fire safety should always be treated as kind of a priority and uh, kind of managed accordingly. It's a fact that fires kill people and they're common, more common than they really should be. And so if we pay more attention to fire safety, we literally are saving lives. And that happens to be one of the core missions of the Event Safety Alliance, which is why for me, this is such a great, I don't know, kind of mixture of thinking. Uh, by the way, the uh, fire safety standard started at the end of 2016. The first task group was put together and we met for the first time in January of 2017. So it's been, what, four years or so in the making? Um, and on the task group were members from uh, around the world, from Australia and Britain, uh, the UK, United Kingdom of Great, Great Britain, uh, from Germany. And those folks were very, very uh, um, essential in contributing some very strict standards that exist in Europe in general. Uh, Canadians, of course, a number of uh, folks from the U.S. Danielle, uh, South Carolina, for example. Yeah, South <laughs> Carolina. Uh, we went that far. Yes, <laughs> to include South Carolina. But we really had some deeply passionate and caring and, and frankly, brilliant people helping us uh, decide, distill, I might add, distill down what really is needed. If you're not, and by the way, we tried to develop this standard so that for those who don't have it. For instance, in some parts of China, they're not required to uh, meet any particular standard for fire safety. So we wrote this standard to apply anywhere on earth, even where there might not be regulation or required legal standards. This standard can at least give you a minimum level of safety as it relates to uh, uh, fire. And so with that, uh, I'd like to kind of give you the purpose I think is important. It's actually written in the document and it says the purpose of the standard is to achieve a level of life safety, property protection from actual and potential hazards created by fire, explosions, smoke, heat, and other hazardous conditions at a live event. I like to, uh, it doesn't have the word reasonable in there. And I think that might be something, uh, you know, that we uh, put in later, but it's certainly implied. The whole idea is that this standard, we want to achieve a reasonable level of life safety and property protection at a live event. Uh, and that, that's why we came up with the uh, basically the 10 chapters that are included in this. It goes through uh, from general fire safety to um, 
uh, occupant load, which is a way of uh, how do you decide how many people can fit in a space, whether it's indoor or outdoor. It addresses that. It talks you through that. That alone is a mathematically complex approach that's it's, uh, described in great detail by a number of different model codes. But we try to simplify it down and get it so that, you know, essentially you can do it if you had to on, say, the back of an envelope or a napkin. You yep. can get it done. So do do Don, remember I, I that in general, your fire marshal will need to sign off on that. So, Don, we had this whole, I, I remember one time we had a, a very long, in-depth conversation about uh, round tables, basically, in a, in a convention or ballroom style thing. Um, and we ended up uh, being very, very specific in terms of how far we wanted something to be. And I think it was 5.7.2, because I know you guys have all Googled this and you're following along at home. So, Don, can you talk a little bit more about that? Shout out to podcast listeners. <laughs> uh, oh, absolutely. Um, this was what was so much fun for me with the task group, uh, the, the diverse perspectives. You know, I, I grew up in public safety and in the fire service. And so I have a very kind of narrow focus about uh, fire safety, but it's such a, it was such a breath of fresh air dealing with folks who are active in the industry and, and have questions about well, like this, for instance, in this particular standard, we talked about, well, round tables, how far apart sh should they be? And by the way, the event safety summit, uh, several of the last ones has involved large round tables. How far should they be apart to be safe so that there's enough space between them? Well, and we just, aisles. We just, yeah, go ahead, what? And aisles, because you, let's say you're going to a wedding and they're like, trying to put 250 guests in a room that really you can fit 200 people comfortably in no matter what it says on the wall, you know, and that's the sort of things that, that different people on the group are like, we keep seeing this. So we oh. want to, we want the standard to help mitigate that. In our discussion, we talked about, so should we describe uh, the backs of unoccupied chairs, how far they should be apart? Should we describe how far apart the round table should be uh, regardless of the chairs? Uh, to make sure there's enough room in there. Should we talk about occupied chairs? And in fact, we, we settled on occupied chairs and we said eventually, and this had a, a whole lot of very interesting discussion, but eventually we set on that occupied chairs should not be less than one foot apart from chair to chair or about a meter from a wall. That's an occupied chair from a wall. But then you think, so when you look at the model standards, they actually give details like, well, you can mimic an occupied chair by setting the chair 19 inches from the table. There are details like this in other standards. So what we tried to do is kind of mush it all together to say the following, that round tables should be or shall be spaced. So this is a mandatory requirement of this standard. So the backs of occupied chairs are not less than a foot about a third of a meter apart. That's chair to chair, or about a meter from a wall. That's an occupied chair. Now, uh, the other way of putting it in the model standards, they say that a chair back should be uh, about 19 inches from a table. And then table to table, therefore, should be 50 inches apart. Now, that's their minimums. Now, if you do all the math, you end up 
uh, that it gets so confusing so fast. We just wanted a simple statement. Occupied chair should be no closer than a foot apart. You know, I think it's a pretty straightforward thing. We also go into no round table shall be any closer to a wall than 55 inches. Yeah, that, so is that all sounds very formulaic, but when you think about it, what you're doing with that is you're making it so that if visibility is obscured, it's dark, it's smoky, it's whatever, you can follow the wall and not run into chairs and tables and, and other obstructions on your way out. And what we found was that this is not well addressed even in the model codes. And we felt, uh, the members of the task group felt so strongly about this, how important this is that there should be a space by a wall. A wall should be considered an aisle, no, almost no matter what, because it's, you can't go through it, so you have to go along it. It's like putting a fence. And so uh, I'm quite happy and satisfied with the results in the standard, and I was just fascinated by the discussion, even having you know, so much background in the codes and, and uh, the, the uh, fire safety perspective. It was great, so great to hear from people in the industry that where they were comfortable and also where they were not comfortable in these type of standards. So I wanna ask you a question about occupant load. Um, and now I'm doing what I often do when I'm outside of my own area of expertise, but here's something that does relate to something that I know a little about, which is in this case, crowd management. So in the world of managing crowds, we use the term occupant load fairly often. Uh, particularly in general admission events, it is my understanding that occupant load limits are generally a function of fire safety and evacuation ability and time. Is that accurate? Generally, yes. Yes, it is. Um, in most, in the model codes, in the two main model codes, the, the NFPA, on uh, the International Code Council, the ICC. In those model codes, it's generally a cooperation to, um, identifying the occupant load, how many people can safely be allowed in a space is uh, something that between the cooperation of a building official, someone who knows about the building itself and its design and engineering, and then the fire official who is uh, concerned about what if there's a fire how fast can we get out and uh, are the exits big enough? Are the paths to the exit uh, appropriately sized and shaped and too long, too short? So in essence, you're right. It's about the design of a building and the fire safety elements related to that. Those two folks establish, and by the way, in the United States, certainly we call it a fire official or the person who has the authority, the legal authority to establish establish an occupant load. It should be established for uh, every space, but it's not always. And if it is, it's not always uh, monitored and then, um, I don't know, enforced. And so uh, it's, it's something that we don't take lightly. Um, Danielle mentioned a moment ago that it's something that the fire official would establish. You're quite correct, but a fire official, it will be involved. If you have an outdoor event, where there used to be a greenfield, but now we're going to have, you know, 100,000 people here, you'll have it broken into spaces, probably. There'll be perimeters, there'll be fences and other things. And the fire official, uh, mainly the fire official, but sometimes also the building official, will get involved in helping determine how many people can safely fit. So what we try to do in this standard 
is not give a total explanation, but we tell people where to go to get this uh, done if it's not done. And then if it is done, please follow it. And actually there's a statement in here about if the occupant load is 10,000, don't put 10,000 people in there, please make it less. Make sure that it's less, the fewer, the safer. So uh, just because there's a number doesn't mean that you have to absolutely fill the place to that number. Often it's not safe to do that and you need to actually back down from that. My recommendation is generally by about 10% at least. Well, I, I know also occupancy could be one thing for a building, but it changes depending on how the building is configured. So if you're in a, in a hall, in a convention center, if you're set up theater style, that's one way. If you're set up for a banquet, it's another. And a lot of times in venues like that, they have those pre-authorized, but sometimes we get real creative when we're doing live events and we're like, let's do this in an abandoned railroad station. So, you know. <laughs> well, there are a couple things uh, to think about. First of all, in this standard, um, unlike in NFPA and ISTC standards, in those standards, they're basically within a structure. Yeah. The NFPA, the ICC structures are generally about uh, inside a structure and then they, they break it down into generally two groups, fixed seating and then movable or portable seating or no seating at all. Uh, with fixed seating, it's quite simple. The occupancy load is the number of seats that were allowed to be built into the venue. Without uh, those fixed seatings, now you've got all these complicating factors. Uh, you can have chairs, you can have tables, you can have tables and chairs, you need aisles. How, how long can my line of chairs be? How many tables can I fit? Are they square tables? Are they round tables? Um, <laughs> there's so many variables. It's really hard to explain. That's why that uh, one of our simplest um, guides in this standard is that you need to involve the fire official who will help you compute a safe occupant load if one does not exist. I can almost guarantee that for an interior, for an, in a structure, there will be an occupant load computed. So you just have to learn what it is if you don't know. Where it gets more challenging is those model codes don't apply often to outside spaces. And so that's when you have to apply a little more imagination and you have to have a little more expertise about, as Steve was mentioning, crowd management, how crowds move and how they're gonna react in this particular space. Is it downhill? Will it be muddy? Is it gonna be raining? Where will the lights be at night? There's so many other factors that come uh, into play. So, so Steve, is there a standard that would talk about any of those things? Well, yeah, but it's the common law legal standard to behave reasonably under the circumstances. Um, and that is the answer, full stop. Having said that, there is lots of historical guidance to say the circumstances really do matter. Um, and I am thinking just because there was a TV special about the station nightclub fire just a couple of days ago, um, and actually completely coincidentally, I have an email in my inbox from John Baralik, um, who was the author of the fabulous book about the station nightclub fire, Killer Show. So shout hey, out. We've to, talked about that book before. We have. Um, so <laughs> podcast listeners, if you're looking for something to read, which is gripping, uh, in incredibly heartbreaking and really instructive. Um, the book is called Killer Show. The author is John, J-O-H-N, Baralik, B-A-R-Y-L-I-C-K. Anyway, the point 
that I'm trying to make here after that sidetrack is one of the things that happened at the Station Nightclub, which was a roadhouse in West Warwick, Rhode Island, is each time the owners of the club reconfigured the furniture, they somehow convinced the local fire marshal to increase the occupancy limit, the maximum occupancy of the building. That should not be a thing, but it raises an issue which should be a thing, which is when determining how many people can safely be in a space, which is to say how many people can safely evacuate a space before fire consumes all the breathable oxygen, you have to remember who are the people in the building. Are they young, which is to say, are they smaller? Do they move quickly and nimbly through space? Or are they older, slower, larger, um, take up more space, take more time to react and then move decisively? Um, are they in some way mobility impaired, sight impaired, hearing impaired? Um, these are all very important aspects of fire safety because they're important aspects of life safety, which is sort of the larger heading above which fire safety is an essential element. So, you know, the reason that I repeatedly get on my soapbox about what's reasonable under the circumstances is the circumstances really do matter. And with fire safety, because there is so little margin for error once a fire is consuming breathable oxygen, it's really important to work cooperatively with the local authorities to make sure that you're making decisions that are reasonable under your circumstances for your event. Um, and alas, there is more than 100 years of pretty clear historical evidence of what happens when that cooperative relationship does not work. One of the, uh, uh, I think, most attractive elements of this particular standard, it's, it's, a, it's a 50 pages. It was quite long for an ESTA standard. Uh, but the second 25 pages are an appendix uh, or it's explanatory material. And the good news about this, and, and I've got even positive comments from my uh, friends at the NFPA, it's, it's an education. It's like a training course in the second 25 pages. It explains some of the very fundamentals of fire and extinguishers and, and why we, what an ABC fire is, uh, those kind of things. So it explains it in very uh, elementary terms. It doesn't use a lot of high-tech vernacular, uh, not very technical in nature, but it kind of walks you through things. And that is, includes in our section of occupant load, by the way, and I think it's uh, maybe section four in the standard, uh, it, it actually gives how other people in other parts of the world compute things, like how big exits should be, and how many of them should we have, um, how far it should be to the exits. The actual math is there if one wants to read or learn about it. More importantly, it gets in directions where you can go to get more information. And I think the, the second 25 pages of this particular standard are what make it so unique and I think useful to members of our industry. Yeah, I always think it's the whole standard rating process is you're always learning more things than you knew. And the fact that it's in writing in, a, in one place, you know, you can always go back because I don't know about you guys, but I learn new things all the time. But then I'm like... I'm not sure I remember all of those details, but I'd know where to go back and look for clarification. 
Um, we did kind of stop, by the way, in the occupant load, which is, I think, uh, the fourth section. But it also, this standard goes into means of aggress, uh, just how to get out um, and all the things related to an exit. Uh, fire safety on a stage. We had some technical expertise on our task group. And uh, this has historically been a huge part of the threat of fire, just everything in and around stages, particularly when there's any ignition source or open flames or uh, now we like to put pyro and other things around a stage. So that was huge, fire safety on a stage. We also uh, went into detail on fire risk assessment. This is becoming more popular and actually required around the world, although we're a little bit late coming to that party in the United States. Um, fire risk assessment, being able to determine how big is the risk or threat of fire. We also talk about um, uh, fire safety plan. We give all the elements of it. I think this alone could be quite valuable to a reader or user of this standard. Uh, the elements of it, and they're quite straightforward and simple, but you can go find these. Uh, have a smoking policy, know where your exits are, have a map. Those kind of things are quite simple. It also goes into um, the authority having jurisdiction for fire safety. It talks a little bit about, you know what, this is the person who has the bottom line authority to say go or no go for a show. And so isn't it a good idea to maybe get along with them? And it gives a few hints on how to uh, work with them to uh, with for a better outcome. And then the last uh, section. Is there a uh, section on donuts? <laughs> no, uh, fruit, fruit. Fruit. Yes. Excellent. Oh, it's a healthier fruit. choice. Fruit, yes. Uh, the last section of the standard is on special risks. And here we go into a number of things from, uh, I don't know, lithium batteries to electricity to about a dozen different topics. And we don't get into much detail. We just really bring out the things, if you're gonna work with electric, this is, here's the three things you must know. The same thing with lithium batteries and pyro and those types of things. This is a very practical standard. It's, dot, it's not too technical. Anyone can read this and be, uh, can infer what to do at a, to, to improve fire safety. Well, now I'm all excited to read it again. <laughs> so, so that raises a question. Will you remind our podcast listeners what the name of this standard is and where they can get a free copy of it for themselves? If you go to, I'm happy to do that. Uh, if you go, just Google this, ESTA space TSP. That's uh, ESTA TSP, Technical Standards Program. If you Google that, the first thing that crops up, one of the subsets of that will say, um, uh, get the documents, resource Published documents. documents. Published documents. Mm -hmm. And you go there and for free. And this is sponsored uh, by a number of wonderful uh, organizations, including insurance companies. Uh, they allow us to download for free these standards. The name of this one is ANSTES 1.4. 2021 event safety, event fire safety requirements. And if you if you just uh, Google ANSI-ES1.4, that alone should get you probably right to the TSP page. Um, but uh, I highly recommend anyone who's going to have any role in organizing an event, if you're going to have any supervisory or leadership role, uh, uh, I encourage you strongly to please review this document. It's not a heavy read. And actually the second half of it, it reads more like a, um, 
uh, an explanatory or kind of educational program about fires in general and fire safety. Uh, highly recommended reading for anyone organizing an event. That feels like a good place to, to start wrapping up this pod. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Dr. Cooper, for joining us today and talking about the fire safety standard. Uh, please look it up. Consider getting involved. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have something to do with live events and you are welcome to join the merry band of people choosing their words very carefully. Uh, that information also can be found on the ESTA website. If you want to email us for any reason, let us know what you're thinking. Podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. You can check us out on social media or uh, check out our website, eventsafetyalliance.org. Can I also say thank you all for what you're doing for safety in the industry. Um, it's needed and it's valued. And thank you all very much. All right. Thank you all again. We look forward to seeing you all next time. Stay safe out there. <laughs>